right, let's jump into the word. Open your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. That's in the Old Testament, what we would call one of the minor prophets. You know, if you, if you, if you don't know where it's at, just open your, book to the, your Bible to the middle. That would be the Psalms probably, and turn right. And keep turning right to you get through all the major prophets, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, all that, Daniel. And then you'll get to the minor prophets. You'll get to Hosea, and then Jonah, the story of the whale, and then Micah. Micah chapter 5. Uh, we could have titled this sermon series, Christmas with the Prophets. We're going through all the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Um, this week, we're going to look at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to talk about peace. Uh, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and so every week we read it and study it so that we can experience the truth and the life in it. So we hope we experience truth and life this morning. Hear the reading of God's Word. Now muster your troops, a daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Since the reading of God's word, all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The glass, grass withers and the flowers fade, but not God's word. It stands forever. Where were you born? Not a question you get very often. You, you, you know, you, you get the question, where are you from a lot? I just met one of our college students over here. I asked her, where was she from? It's a pretty common question. But where were you born is a slightly different question. Where is your birthplace, right? I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Big Pink Hospital just down the road, as maybe some of you were as well. Uh, my wife was born in Ames, Iowa, while her dad was studying at Iowa State. Um, I would say most people are probably born in hospitals. Some people are born at home. There may be a few of you here that were born at home. Uh, some people give birth wherever they can in really odd places. Uh, I found an article this week, the 10 strangest places to give birth. And they listed them in this order. Number 10, an apartment building lobby. Uh, number nine, Uber. Number eight, an elevator. Number seven, an airplane. Number six, a Chick-fil-A bathroom. Of course, the holy chick would be the place where you'd give birth. <laughs> Number five, this, this is the most amazing to me, up a tree. Apparently, there was lots of flooding, and they retreated up a tree. It was in one of these aborigine areas, and the lady gave birth in a tree. True story, I guess. The internet said it was true, so therefore, it must have been true. Uh, number four, Walmart. You can truly do everything at Walmart. Uh, number five, number three, asleep. Number two, a taxi. And number one, 
a lion den. Apparently, well, it's, it's a little bit of a trick, right? But the, the mother and the baby were in an ambulance and they weren't going to make it to the hospital. So they pulled over in a lion refuge and she gave birth in the ambulance in the lion refuge. Anyways, for most of us, where we're born is a matter of, of health and safety concerns, but not for Jesus. Where Jesus was born is of immense historical and theological significance. When God chose the birthplace of Jesus, he was trying to tell us something about the character of Jesus and about his mission. And what he was trying to teach us, as we're going to see in this passage, is that this, this really powerful, profound lesson that humility gives birth to peace. It's humility that gives birth to peace. If you want to find peace in your life, if we want peace on earth and goodwill for men, then humility is the way to get there. But first, we need to talk about this peace. It tells us in verse 5 that he shall be their peace, that this king that Micah is prophesying about is going to bring peace. So what is peace? Peace is tranquility. It's harmony. It is the absence of hostility in our relationships. That's how our dictionary defines it. The Bible describes peace uh, more comprehensively. Peace is a wholeness or a wellness that comes when we're living in right relationships. It's the absence of hostility in our relationship with God and with others, right? In both of our definition and the Bible's definition, central to this idea of peace is the absence of hostility. And we think about the holidays, we think about peace, we think about friends and family members opening presents together, enjoying food and drink together, celebrating together, playing together, right? That's peace. We might think about our coworkers at the, at the office. We're working together on end-of-the-year projects. Right? We might think about community events that are marked by freedom and fruitfulness. Right? Peace is when all of our relationships are in harmony. Uh, like how one pastor said it, peace is an unbroken circle like a wedding ring. Right? A wedding ring is... Uh, I'm wearing a silicone ring right now. There's a story behind that. I'll probably tell you later. But it's, you know, this, this wedding ring is, is circular. It's whole. It's complete. That's what peace is. Well, how do we get peace? Um, <laughs> ironically, we often seek peace through war, through conflict, through battle. Uh, I read one author said that in the last 300 years, there have been 386 wars in Europe. And since the year 1500, 8,000 known peace treaties have been signed. And every one of them was signed with the intention of lasting forever. And most of them only lasted two years. So war, while sometimes necessary, doesn't always bring peace. Just because we sign a peace treaty doesn't mean that we're going to have peace everlasting. We know that in our families, right? Like we may have conflict, we may have strife, we may work through things and then resolve to live at peace with each other. And then five minutes later, somebody does something to upset you and peace is destroyed. Right? 
Sometimes we look for peace in ourselves. Secular psychologists teach us to do that. They, they provide helpful tips like breathing, journaling, visualizing happiness, practicing compassion and thankfulness. All those things are good things. And all those things can bring a measure of maybe momentary peace, right? But they don't fix the heart or change the heart. And when you're uh, trying to get your child to obey you, or you're trying to get your spouse to love you, or you're trying to get your coworker to work with you, uh, breathing and journaling and visualizing will only take you so far because at the end of the day, you are the biggest problem in the room. And something has to change inside of you. A physician can't heal himself. He's got to go to a doctor. So where do we get peace? How do we get it? Well, the, the birth of Jesus, this birthplace that God has chosen us, teaches us that peace comes not from within ourselves, and it comes not from war, right? We receive peace as we humble ourselves before our humble King, Jesus. As we humble ourselves before Jesus, then peace is something that is birthed inside of us. There's a transformation that takes place in our hearts through humility. Humility is the birthplace of peace. So we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to look at three things in this passage. Peace comes from Bethlehem. Peace comes from of old. And peace comes from of us. Kids, I'm going to listen for a story about a sword and a stone. Listen for a story about a sword and a stone. The first thing we see is that peace comes from Bethlehem. Verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Right? So uh, uh, Micah tells us right away in this prophecy that the king, the ruler that Israel is looking for, is going to come from Bethlehem. Right? Now, that, that probably doesn't mean a lot to us because Bethlehem is kind of famous for us, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. You can see why I'm not in the band, right? But Bethlehem was not the place where you would have expected a king to be born. You would have expected the king to be born in Jerusalem. That's where the kings lived. That was the center of the uh, Jewish religion. Bethlehem was about five miles southwest of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and it was a small town, It was tiny. It was so small that whenever they did the censuses in the Old Testament, Bethlehem wasn't even listed in the the towns of Judea. Judea. It would be like saying, hey, I'm going to have the king born in Hectorville. Do you know where Hectorville is? It's south of Tulsa. If you Google the population of Hectorville, nothing will come up. I tried this week, but there is someone in our congregation that lives in Hectorville, and so I thought, hey, this would be a good, this would be a good analogy. There's no population, right? I guess they're the only ones that live there. <laughs> That's what Bethlehem was like. This was not the place where you would have chosen to birth the king, yet God chose to have the king born in Bethlehem. Why? Well, who else was born in Bethlehem? David was born in Bethlehem. And David was the great king of Israel. David uh, was this little shepherd boy that God called from shepherding the sheep 
and exalted him all the way up to the king of Israel. David was so small and insignificant that whenever the prophet came to look for the king, David's dad brought out all of his older brothers first and just left David in the pasture. And the prophet was like, no, 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 wait a minute. You got to have another kid. And he was like, oh yeah, we've got David. He said, go get David. And they brought little David up and he said, this is the one who's supposed to be king. David was so small that he didn't get to go to war with his brothers when they were battling the Philistines, but his dad sent him to take some food to his brothers. And when he got there to take the food to his brothers, he saw this giant named Goliath taunting God's people. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine taunting God's people? I'm going to go out there and fight him. And he goes out there and fight him and, and Goliath just laughs at him. And what does David do? He picks up a stone. He slings it. He hits Goliath in the head, kills him, defeats God's enemies, and then God's people rush in to kill the Philistines. God took this little shepherd boy, this small wheat boy, and exalted him into the leader and king of Israel. So what is God saying by having Jesus being born in Bethlehem? He is saying that just as God took this little shepherd boy, David, and exalted him to kingship, he is going to take his son, Jesus, and he is going to, hum- he is going to be the humble, small, weak king that nobody would have suspected. And he is going to take that humble king and he is going to exalt him to the place of power in Israel. But he's not going to be a king like the worldly kings. He's going to be a shepherd king. A shepherd king uh, protects his flock. He cares for his flock. He nurtures his flock. And he lays down his, sheep, his life for his flock. And isn't that what Jesus tells us that he does in John chapter 10? Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And I lay down my life for my sheep. His whole life was a life of humility. And that humility led him all the way to the cross where he laid down all of his glory, all of his power, all of his strength. In the ultimate sign of weakness, he gave his life for his sheep. By being born in Bethlehem, God is saying that Jesus is a humble shepherd king. And his kingship is totally different than the kingships of this world. Uh, there's a story about Joseph Stalin. He was a, a ruler of Russia from 18, uh, he was alive from 1878 to 1953. Uh, uh, the story goes that Stalin was with his closest comrades and he wanted to teach them how to lead. And so he picked up a chicken. He took this chicken in his arms and as he talked to his leaders, he slowly began to pluck the chicken. And he pulled off every single feather of the chicken until it was bald except for the head of its hair. And then he put the chicken down. Well, of course, the chicken didn't have any feathers, so it was too hot or too cold. So the chicken just rested up against Stalin's leg. And Stalin fed the chicken. And that chicken followed Stalin wherever he went. And Stalin said, this, my friends, is how you lead. What did he do? He stripped people of their power. He stripped people of their dignity. He used and abused people. That's how he governed. 
That's the way that we think that we get power in this world is by stripping people of power and using them and pushing them down and building up ourselves. But that's not what Jesus shows us in this passage. That's not what God says in his king. Jesus is the humble king that gives peace not through stripping others of power, but by using his power to give people peace and safety and security. So we have to ask ourselves, when we want peace, when we're striving for peace, how do we get it? How do we achieve peace? Right? As a parent, it's easy to try to force your kids into being peaceful. As a spouse, it's easy to try to manipulate your spouse into being exactly what you want. As a roommate, it's easy to be passive-aggressive or to blame or to guilt trip to try to get your roommate to do the things that you want them to do. But in all those situations, what are you doing? You're using your power to strip other people of dignity. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus used his power humbly. He sacrificed himself for others. When you want power, where do you look? Do you look to money? I'm sorry, when you want peace, where do you look? Do you look to money? Do you look to alcohol? Do you look to shopping? Do you look to images on the internet? Do you look to um, video games? What is it? Where's the place you go for peace? What God is telling us here is that the peace that you want and need comes not from the kings of this world, and it comes from not exercising your own power, but it comes from humbling yourself before Jesus the King. When we humble ourselves before Jesus and we ask him to forgive us for our sins, then the hostility between us and God is removed and we're at peace with God. And we have peace with God, then we have the peace of God. You see, all these other things that we look to in the world to give us peace don't actually give us peace. When we make them our kings, they give us more shame and more guilt and so that we have less peace. But Jesus is the only king that gives us deep peace by removing our shame and our guilt and breaking that cycle so that we're at peace with God and we can have peace with others. So the first thing we see is that peace comes from Bethlehem. It comes from a place of humility. The second thing we see is that peace comes from of old. Look at verse 2, the second half of verse 2. It says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days, right? So this word, Hebrew word for ancient of days means the remotest of time, from, from time before time, right? Before time existed, And whenever this term is used for God, it means time everlasting. It's used in in Psalm 90 verse 2 as as God existing before creation and creating everything, right? So for the prophet Micah to say that this king, which is Jesus, is from ancient of days, is to say that he existed before time began. He existed before the creation of the world. Right? It, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of the pre-incarnate Jesus, that he was the eternal son of God before he became a man. He existed as God. 
Uh, we see this all through the scriptures. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, plural, because God is one God and three persons. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, that's Jesus, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Everything was made through Jesus. Colossians 1.15-17 says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is not just a humble king. He's an eternal king. He is, he is the king that was infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and perfect in his wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. He's that kind of king. And yes, he did call himself a king, and he called himself God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, and you're thinking, Jesus never called himself a king. Jesus never called himself God. And sometimes if you're talking to a skeptic, you might hear them say that. Well, yeah, Paul called Jesus God, and his disciples did, and John did, but Jesus never called himself God. Well, there was one time when Jesus was talking to some of the Jews. He was trying to explain to them his ministry. And he says, your father Abraham would have rejoiced if he saw me. He saw it and was glad. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When he said that I am, what was he pointing him back to? He was pointing him back to the covenant with Abraham. Right? He was pointing him back to Moses. Whenever, whenever Moses was going to go tell the Israelites about God, and Moses said, hey, who do I tell them that you are? And they said, he said, tell them I am who I am. Jesus, in the most Jewish way possible, was saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am Yahweh, the creator, sustainer, ruler, and redeemer of the universe. So Jesus is not just a humble king, but he is this infinite, eternal, all-powerful creator, redeemer king. He's the once and future king that all of the great king stories talk about, right? If you look at all the great king stories, they all have a similar narrative. Uh, one of the best is the story of King Arthur, right? It says, once upon a time, there was an English king and he was being attacked. And so while he was being attacked, he was afraid that his kingdom was going to be overthrown. So he took his son and he gave him to Merlin, the, the wizard, the magician. And Merlin hid his son, right? And the, the boy grew up away from the castle. He was small. He was weak. He was puny. He got bullied, maybe like some of you youngsters here in the, in the crowd, right? And um, what happened was while the boy was, was, was growing up, right, Merlin trained that boy. But in the meantime, what happened was uh, the king died, and Merlin took a sword, and he put it in a stone, and he cast a spell on it. And he said, whoever can take this sword out of the stone will be the true king of Israel. So people came from all over the place to try to pull the sword out of the stone. They couldn't do it. 
the meantime, Merlin trains Arthur, teaches him how to use his mind and his heart rather than his strength. When the boy was 15, finally it came time for him to become king of the throne. So he took the boy to the sword in the stone and all the people gathered around as this small, puny, weak little boy went to pull the sword out of the stone. And he, he gets to the sword. He looks at the sword. He looks at the audience. They're all laughing and mocking him. He reaches down and this small, weak, puny boy pulls the sword out of the stone like it's nothing. And he thinks to himself, are any of these people going to let me be king? I'm a small, weak, puny boy. And out of the crowd, a woman shouts, all hail King Arthur. And the people start yelling, all hail King Arthur. He was a humble king, but he was a powerful king. Just like Jesus is the humble king, but he's a powerful king. And all the great king's stories are borrowing from Jesus. So why does that matter for us? It matters because of this. If Jesus is the true king, the true creator and sustainer of this world, then he knows exactly how it's supposed to work. And there's, an, there's a way that we're created to function in this world. And if we don't function, if we don't live within the way we're created, then we're not going to have peace. Just like, think about a fish, right? A fish was created to live in water. So as long as a fish lives in water, then it's going to live the way it's supposed to live. It's going to, it's going to be whole. It's going to be complete. It's going to be happy. But if you take a fish out of water, what happens? It's going to die. Because the fish isn't living according to its function. Well, it's the same way with us. God created us to live a certain way. And if we don't live a certain way, then we don't experience peace. Let's apply that to our relationships. God created us to live in harmonious, peaceful, loving, caring relationships. Not relationships that are broken and marred by unforgiveness. We're not going to experience peace in our relationships if we live in unforgiveness because we're not created to live that way. We're not created to live in relationships that are uh, unreconciled. We're not created to, to live with a spouse that we're not in harmony with. We're not created to live with our parents and not live in this harmonious, obedient relationship to them, right? We're not created to fight with our siblings, We're not created to overwork. We're not created to use our bodies in ways that hurt us and hurt others. That's not the way God created us. And so when we live that way, we don't experience peace. Peace comes as we allow the gospel to change our hearts, as it renovates us, and then as we live differently in our own lives. Peace comes as we forgive as we've been forgiven. Peace comes as we reconcile because God has reconciled us. Peace comes as we serve because we've been served. That's how we experience peace in our relationships. If you're you're worried about how the holiday feast is going to go with your family, the way to bring peace to that holiday feast is not to come in to exert your power and your influence and your authority over everyone in the room. 
The way to bring that peace is to humble yourself, to become a servant, to engage in loving, caring relationships. The way to get your child to obey you is not to stand above them as some authoritarian figure that says, you will obey me, but to get down on a knee and look at them eye to eye and say, I love you and I care for you and I want what's best for you. The way to experience a great Christmas morning, kids, is not to steal your brother and sister's toys or to break them because you're jealous because you didn't get what you wanted or because your toys aren't filling you up. The way to experience peace on Christmas is to share and to give and to learn to live in love with your siblings. That's how we live the way we're created to live. And when we live as the way we're created to live, in humble submission to Jesus, then we experience peace peace. And then peace actually comes from us. That's the third thing we see. Peace comes from Bethlehem. Peace comes from of old. And then peace comes from us. It says it in verses five and six. Um, It's kind of hard to see, but basically what it's saying is, is that this king is going to defeat the Assyrians, the people who are attacking the Israelites, And then he's going to raise up the Israelites to shepherd those people, right? That that the Assyrians are going to end up actually living in the land with the Israelites, and the Israelites are going to be their shepherds. They're actually going to care for them. There's actually a a transfer that takes place where these, these people that were enemies of God actually become friends of God. And this animosity and this strife that is taking place between God's people and their enemies is actually going to be changed into peace. Uh, We see this in other places, like the passage we just read in Isaiah 9. It talks about Jesus being the prince of peace. In other places in Isaiah, it talks about God's people taking their swords and reforging their swords into plowshares so that they can harvest. So instead of using their swords as a weapon, then they use their swords to reap the harvest of people coming into God's kingdom. Well, if we go to the New Testament, where do we see God's people exchanging their swords for plowshares that they can use in the harvest? The book of Acts. We just got through studying the book of Acts. And what do we see? In pretty much every chapter of Acts, God's people are faced with opposition. And when they're faced with opposition, how do they respond? Do they respond with the sword of metal? No. They respond with the sword of the Spirit. They preach the word. They serve. They love. They care for other people. They stand for the truth. But they do so in a way that the sword of the Spirit pierces and penetrates the hearts. And it changes the world. Friends, that's how God brings peace on earth. It's through bringing first peace between us and him, and then peace between people in this room, and then he uses us to bring peace to the world outside of us. The first thing we have to have is peace with God. If you haven't humbled yourself and bowed the knee to Jesus and said, all hail King Jesus, then today's the day. Let him take away your animosity, your anger, your pain, your suffering, your shame, and your guilt. And then we've got to make peace with each other. If you're not at peace with someone in this room, then I want to encourage you to go and be reconciled to them. 
Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Be reconciled to each other as you've been reconciled to Christ. We've got to live at peace with one another. We can't expect to bring peace to the world if we can't live in peace inside this room. And then we go out and we take the message of the peace to this world. And we share it with them. That's the sound that people want to hear on Christmas. That's the sound that they need. Let me close with this. You've probably heard the Christmas hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Morning. Uh, Well, maybe you haven't heard the story behind that hymn. It was written by a famous poet named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I tried to turn that into an email address. Um, Good, everybody's still awake. Gotcha. Uh, He went through a time of immense sorrow and immense sadness. He lost his wife to illness. And then not long after that, his son was fighting in the Civil War. And he suffered very, very serious wounds. And so around the holiday season, he had to go and sit with his son in the hospital while he recovered. And while he was sitting in the hospital, he wrote these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So he hears the joy of Christmas, but then he's still honest about the strife and the suffering in this world. And this is what he writes. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But he believed in the great King Jesus and in his death and resurrection that brings peace on earth. And so he closes with this. Then then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. As we humble ourselves before the humble eternal King Jesus, he transforms our heart so that we experience peace and so that we bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. But it won't happen without the work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our minds. So let's pray that God would do that now for us. Please pray with me.